Blog Talk Radio. joining us on Blog Talk Radio. We're Three Women, Three Ways. We're the show that talks about a lot of current events, women's issues, things that we care about in our world today, and we look at it from a number of different perspectives. I'm Heather Stark. I'm your host, and uh, I actually am a student, and I am working on a PhD. I'm working on my dissertation, and uh, I'm hoping to uh, finish that sometime within the next few months and be a Ph.D., a doctor in psychology, and work with uh, domestic violence issues, because that's kind of my my interest. With me today, well, Jenna, I'm going to let you introduce yourself, because you have a lot of credentials, and I'm just going to let you tell us who you are. Okay, I'm happy to do that. First of all, thank you for inviting me to join you today. I'm uh, happy to be able to share what experiences I might have that hopefully will be helpful. Uh, As you said, my name is Jana Martin. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist. I do have a Ph.D. in clinical psychology. I did a specialty, child specialty internship at Duke Medical Center many years ago and uh, had a private practice in, uh, in Mississippi as well as in Long Beach, California. Also, for a while, I was the um, chief psychologist at East Mississippi State Hospital, which is an inpatient psychiatric unit. It was the first hospital in Mississippi and pretty much in the southeast to have an adolescent uh, inpatient unit that focused specifically on adolescents, and I was the, the chief psychologist and unit director there. So I've had a lot of experience with children who have been victims of violence or who have been perpetrators of violence or, as we find most commonly, kids, unfortunately, who have been both. Uh, I also have uh, done a lot of public education work for the American Psychological Association while I was in California. And I left practice about three years ago, and I'm now chief executive officer of the American Psychological Association Insurance Trust. We're the company that provides professional liability insurance coverage for psychologists and other allied health professionals, as well as a bunch of other products that we make available to our policyholders. So my focus at at this point in my career is in helping professionals to manage risk well and be protective uh, of those that they take care of. But uh, my interest in children and youth has been longstanding. Uh, my specialty was working with children and youth in my independent practice. Well, we're very lucky to have you with us today. And our topic that we're going to talk about is right up your alley. It's uh, children, raising children in a violent world. And, boy, we do live in a violent world. I, I suppose every generation thinks that there's... You know, I remember hearing about Socrates saying that the next generation was going to pot, um, and and so I suppose every generation has their their expectations or their their um, um, thoughts about the next generation. But I really do believe that our world has become much more violent, and communication has improved such that everyone is exposed to that violence, even you know, especially children. So there's all sorts of ways kids can be exposed to violence uh, in school. There's bullying all over the place and uh, physical violence in most schools. Uh, certainly, you know, there have been enough um, uh, huge uh, tragedies in the news that happened to kids at school in some places. Um, in the home, uh, you know, when one out of four uh, women has is being uh, um, assaulted in a domestic violence situation, a lot of kids are exposed to that. We also see um, violence in the media. We see violence in the the music. Um, music is really important to adolescents and teens. And boy, you know, you hear that music, and it just uh, knocks my socks off. How violent and misogynistic uh, this music is. And all the way around the world, everyone is being exposed to so much violence, and it has to have an impact on our children. Um, what what does this do to our children um, to be ha- uh, surrounded by so much violence and violent images? 
Well, that's certainly a very good question, and I wish I had uh, one singular answer. Of course, there isn't one, uh, but I'll, I'll do my best to try to give some ideas that I'm sure you and your listeners have certainly heard of and thought about, but maybe we can hear and think about them a little bit differently today. I think that one of the things that most of us uh, in the psychology world and the mental health professional world are concerned about is that there's a difference in the way that violence and violent music and video games and whatever else it is that you want to point to, uh, there's a difference between how it affects children who have been raised in that kind of a culture versus those for whom it is more of a transition, so that the 25-plus-year-olds, the and I know we may not consider them children, but they are youth, uh, they're young adults, and... Um, well, they, well if, you, if, you, if you have a couple of 25-year-olds, you, you, they're still children, <laughs> very much so. <laughs> but, you know, for some of them, uh, the the early part of their life was not characterized necessarily by as much exposure and accessibility to images and uh, YouTube videos and uncensored uh, exposures as those children who are now seven, eight, nine, ten years of age. So uh, my point is that there are uh, there's a, a certain concern that we have that children who have had this exposure at, at large volumes for a number of years uh, tend to be less traumatized by violent movies or violent music or words. Uh, they, they really are more desensitized to what the meaning of some of those words and concepts are uh, because they've become accustomed to it. It is their norm, which I think is pretty scary. I think as adults, who for those of us who uh, weren't exposed to this growing up and, in fact, uh, for whom uh, little simple things uh, were considered to be inappropriate, uh, it's, it's very shocking. Uh, but I think it's all, it is a matter of perspective. Now, I'm not at all suggesting that it's good. <laughs> I, yes, I think exactly. the impact violence is having is related to what I was uh, talking about, that children sometimes become a little bit immune or uh, insensitive to the fact that other people may be upset by violent images. They may be disturbed or uncomfortable with words or threats or concepts in a very different way. So we are existing in communities with people of very different levels of perception of the seriousness of this exposure. A lot of times young people will say, oh, it's not a big deal, I'm not really paying attention to the lyrics, it doesn't mean anything to me, and it's very hard for someone like me to understand that realistically. Yeah, exactly. Like, do not be disturbed by this. Yeah, uh, exactly, uh, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I know I with my children who now are in their 20s, um, I just would think, you know, how how can you bear to listen to this? You know, I mean, and I tried to consciously raise my children to be empathetic. I was always right. saying, so how do you think that person feels? How do you, you know, I mean, I, I really uh, tried to focus on empathy for my children and I just couldn't understand how they could not be disturbed by some of the words in the music or uh, some of the images on their computers. It, it, it just befuddled me. Well, let me let me throw out an interesting uh, thing to kind of compare this to, um, and and I think those of us who have raised children uh, that are around in their twenties, uh, this is not an unusual circumstance. But um, I can remember when I was in high school. Uh, we girls were not allowed to wear pants to school. Mm. Uh, we only could wear dresses, and even if it was very, very cold, unless the principal made an announcement that you could wear pants that day because it was below a certain degree, a young lady did not wear pants to school or in public. Well, 
that seems to our children or young people in their 20s as, oh, that's terrible. That's really awful. How could you have lived that way? Whereas now, I wear pants to work, I wear pants in the public, and I've adjusted to how society has progressed, if you will, I use that word in quotes, how society (laughs) has changed what is acceptable and what isn't. And that's the part that's scary. That's what we as parents and as citizens in the community, I believe, need to be really careful about and attentive to. And that is we still have to hold very firmly to what is acceptable and what is unacceptable with regard to another human being, no matter how much we are able to go on the Internet, no matter how many technological advances there are, there still are some basic rights and wrongs with how we should treat one another. And I think it's important for us, those of us who find it difficult to understand how children can listen to music like that, we ourselves have accommodated in many ways to a lot of other changes in society. And so it it helps us to have a little bit better of a perspective, I think. Yeah, but wearing pants is not going to hurt another person. Oh, I oh, I totally agree. But the ch- my my whole point is, children do not believe that calling other people names or listening to songs of hate and violence is going to hurt another person. They ah, I see. I see. That's yes. my whole. Point. Yeah. Yeah, ah, I see. Okay, this would be a good point for me to to, uh, interrupt a little bit, Jenna, and say um, a lot of people have gone through this with their kids or they're wondering about this with their kids. Give us a call. We'd love to hear your experiences or we'd love to try and answer your questions. The phone number is 646-378-0430. That's 646-378-0430. Call in and join us in this conversation. Well, you know, Jenna, one of the things that always concerned me raising my kids was that, again, as I said, the empathy uh, to be able to put yourself in someone else's shoes. And another thing that always bothered me is the the sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I always changed that and said, but words will hurt forever. Right. Because words can be extremely powerful. Um, and when you hear these words, uh, you know, for us in, in our generation, I assume we're close to the same generation, um, you, it, it's just appalling when you hear this stuff. So how does a parent react to this? Um, well, I know with my kids, they just kind of poo-pooed me whenever I'd try to say, well, you know, wow, look at that, and, you know, do you hear this? Uh, you know, I was just kind of poo-pooed a little bit. Right, right. Well, I think that uh, it's interesting that you use the word react. Uh, How should parents react? Well, I think they shouldn't. I think reacting is what brings up defensiveness in our kids and in our youth. I think instead what we want to do is to try to understand why they don't see it as harmful. Uh, And and once you've kind of gotten into what their perspective is, rather than coming at it with a judgmental view of how could you do this, then you remove that that barrier to having conversations. I Mm. worked many, many years with with adolescents, and uh, they would come to me or be sent to me, forced to see me uh, under a number of circumstances. And certainly it was clear to me that some of the activities they had engaged in were dangerous, unhealthy, and hurtful to others. But I didn't start out by saying, well, you know you did wrong. Now, what is it or how could you do that? What were you thinking? Instead, it was... Tell me, tell me what's going on for you. Tell me, tell me how you feel. And I think parents don't have to be therapists, and they shouldn't try to be their children's therapists, but they should try to allow their children full opportunities to talk about their viewpoints and, not, and for the parents not to jump in and say, well, but that's just wrong, or, well, can't you see that's bad? But what you can say is, you know, I disagree with that. Here's the way I think about it. Here's why 
I wouldn't be comfortable using those words. Because, you see, that keeps the judgment away. It's talking yes. about we're, we're having a conversation. I want your opinion, here's my opinion, and then you can weave in certain teachable moments, if you will, uh, when you approach uh, a discussion or an under, a deeper understanding of your child's perspective instead of reacting to it. Oh, I love that. But, you know, I, I'm not sure I was always able to be that objective and reasonable. <laughs> oh, oh. At I think sometimes the, the things that I, you know, my kids were surrounded by, I was just, I just wanted to run in and protect them from that. I just wanted to, you know, make sure that they didn't carry those attitudes with them. Um, and I, I, you know, your approach is so, so, uh, you know, uh, um, ideal. But it's not always ideal when we're exposed to some of the stuff that our kids are, are seeing. I think that one of the reasons or one of the ways that I dealt with violence. I felt very strongly that I didn't want, want my children exposed to violence. And so I was very, very um, careful uh, not to let my children uh, see violent movies. Um, you know, I mean, uh, when my son was like in second or third grade, his classmates were seeing some of these scary, you know, um, something on Elm Street or, you know, monster movies. Yeah. Yes, yes, and he was like yeah. in second, second, third grade, and I would never permit that, never. And when he had um, um, uh, video games, he couldn't have any video game where uh, people were being shot or killed right. or smeared or whatever. And I thought I was doing him a really good service, but then I found out that I was just making it much more attractive for him. I wasn't right. saving him from exposure because he would see it at his friend's houses. Sure. Um, so I I don't know whether that was the right approach or not, but I thought, well, at least he understands how strongly I feel about these issues. Right. And right. Maybe there's something to be said about that. I don't know. Yeah. What What's your take on on my approach? Did I do it all wrong? <laughs> well, I certainly would never say that. Uh, but, oh, you can. But I, <laughs> You're allowed to. <laughs> Your example raises uh, uh, some very important uh, points that all of us need to think about, and that is that one size doesn't fit all. I think that parents need to know their children, and siblings, as you know, can differ as much as kids from other countries. Uh, so you have to uh, treat each child very differently and understand what the emotional makeup of each child is. What are their capabilities of coping with things? If, for example, you have a child who sees something scary on TV and they have nightmares or they seem very agitated or disturbed, then that's your signal right there that you need to say to the child, you know, I wonder if, if I'm wondering about something. You watched such and such, and, and that night you had a bad dream. And I, I can understand why you did. That would have scared me too. But I'm wondering if maybe you, you need to wait a little while uh, because it's not enjoyable to watch a movie that then keeps you up all night or makes you sick to your stomach the next day. So maybe your body and mind are trying to tell you you're just not ready for that kind of stuff right now. So I think it's it's a matter of being in charge and, and aware of what your children's individual strengths and areas of resilience are to make those decisions. I think we also lose tremendous opportunities for those teachable moments that I referred to when we uh, don't sit down with our children uh, if they're watching something rather than running over and turning the TV all re off real fast. Sit down oh, yeah. with them for a moment and say when there's a commercial or when the show's over, let's talk about that. I have to be honest with you. Uh, I'm not sure I understood that that was entertaining. What was entertaining about it for you? And let me t and then, you know, was there anything about it that was concerning for you? And then it's your turn. There was a lot that was concerning to me. I'm concerned about the fact that life is not valued on this show. It, it's, it, there was some laughter when bad things happened to people. People were ridiculed. And in the real world, that isn't over in 30 minutes or in an hour, which relates to your earlier reference to words hurt forever. 
so you can use those situations to have discussions about, well, let's think about this. What value was this show to you? What did you learn? What did you enjoy? Uh, was it worth the hour? Uh, how do you think it might affect you? How do you think you might make sure it doesn't affect you? Mm-hmm. So those um, are some ideas. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I should have had you in my back room when I was raising my kids. <laughs> <laughs> you could have just lived on that couch in there. And <laughs> right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and um, it, it just, you know, and it is tough. It is tough when you're raising kids. And then when you throw in special circumstances, you know, I mean, yeah, we've been talking a lot about the media, but what if the relationship between mom and dad is abusive? I mean, you know, uh, the U.N. just came out with a report uh, last month about how um, one in three women experiences domestic violence in her right. lifetime. So right. the chances of a of a child being in a home, and even if it's not uh, completely abusive, there's certainly conflict in a lot of homes, uh, more than they're probably, than is ideal, um, I think. And when the conflict occurs, not everybody is a trained psychologist, and so the way it's handled isn't necessarily ideal or, or helpful for the child. So what about a child that's living in circumstances like that? What right. does... Uh, typically in domestic violence, uh, either one or both parents can be abusive. And uh, if it's, you know, what what can a parent do? And what if you're not a parent? But what if you have a niece or something that's, or a nephew that's living in that kind of an environment? What on earth can you do? And before you answer that, let me throw out our phone number again, 646-378-0430. Please don't let me be the only one talking about how I didn't raise my kids right. (laughs) 646-378-0430. So, Jenna, if you remember my question, what can you do if you're actually not the parent, but you know of uh, uh, someone, of a child who's in a very violent environment? Well, I, I think that the issue of children experiencing, witnessing violence among their family members uh, and that can be between other children and parents. It can be, be between children's parents and grandparents. Uh, this is very, very hurtful to the children and can have long-term damaging effects, primarily because uh, children need a safe place to learn about fear, to learn about comfort, to learn about being protected. They need to have a safe center, a person that they can rely on and feel that that will take care of them. And when you have violence in the home or abuse, whether it's verbal abuse or physical abuse, they're all very damaging, uh, it, it can uh, allow children to uh, not feel secure or comfortable or safe, and that can lead to all kinds of difficulties, uh, including health difficulties, including behavioral difficulties. And so if you're a parent in a home, uh, you want to, to get help for yourself to figure out how you can help your child. You also want to get help for your child because your child needs to be able to talk about this and to understand how to soothe oneself while at the same time protecting oneself. Uh, There are certain skills that are extremely important for both the parent and the child to learn. If you're a parent, a relative or a friend who lives outside of the home, uh, then it's a little bit more difficult but it's one of those situations where it's important if the parent uh, is a friend of yours, then you need to take a risk and not be a busybody and not tell them what to do, but to express care and concern. I'm really very concerned because I can see that you're distressed as an adult and you've got all kinds of coping skills that you know. You've got resources. You've got friends that you can talk to about this. You may choose not to, but at least you have those resources. Your child, on the other hand, doesn't. And so it's important for you to uh, allow your child to have some resources so that he or she is not damaged 
in a way that causes irreparable harm or leads them to choose partners who might hurt them as well or who have who develops low self-esteem and feel as if they're not worthy of people treating them correctly. It's a very serious situation, and I think that uh, we have a responsibility whether we're in the family or outside of the family, uh, to ensure that the child get resources that he or she could not access on his or her own. The adult in the situation, for various reasons, may choose not to get help for him or herself, but the child doesn't have that choice, and we need to facilitate the child having access to appropriate services and safety. Yeah. That is a risky conversation. Um, it is. If you are um, uh, have been exposed to a, a person or situation where there's domestic violence, that uh, parent probably is well aware that uh, it's not an ideal situation for the child, and they probably um, are, are worried about that anyway, um, so, wow, you know, I mean, that's like laying guilt on top of guilt, but what are you going to do? You know, I yeah. mean, it, yeah, it's, it's certainly uh, not intended to be guilt upon guilt, but uh, I think it's a lot of times um, it's easier for uh, victims of abuse, if we're talking about a woman or a man in a relationship, it is easier for them uh, to help protect a child, and they're more willing to take risks to help their children than sometimes they are for themselves. And I think yeah. that they they will go to links and they need guidance on safe ways to get help because we certainly don't want someone in an abusive relationship to have a reaction that then triggers more violence and potentially extreme harm or death. Yeah. Well, and we know that statistically, uh, if a woman is killed trying to leave a domestic, it's when she's trying to leave that domestic violence situation. So that's a very real yes. risk. And right. unfortunately, it, it's also a risk for the children. I mean, uh, it's hard to pick up a newspaper or open the Internet without seeing a story where somebody, some abuser has killed his entire family or killed the children to be even, you know, to to, to hurt the, the uh, mother or the other parent. And, you know, I mean, it, it's a very real possibility. I know I was talking with a woman once, a, a, an acquaintance, and she was frustrated because she had a, a, a relative or a friend that was in an abusive situation, and she wanted advice from me because she knew I, I dealt a lot in this kind of thing, and she wanted advice to me. She said, the woman just refuses to leave. And I said, did she tell you why she refuses to leave? And the woman said, oh, she thinks he's going to kill her or something if she leaves. And right. I went... He very well could. That's a Absolutely. very legitimate concern. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, That's why so. it's really important for people not to try to do this themselves. Professionals are trained on how to do this, and they don't always get it right either. I'll, I'll fully acknowledge that. But professionals are much more aware, who have specialty, I don't mean just any professional, but someone who has expertise in, in domestic violence and abusive situations, uh, let's rely on their expertise to assist in how best to accommodate the children's needs and the, ab the abuse victim's needs instead of our going in like we're going to save this family. Uh, I think that uh, our energies and our efforts and our wishes, uh, good intentions are best served by ensuring that these situations are handled by professionals to protect all concerned. Well, and i got to tell you, not all professionals are as knowledgeable as you are. Um, so, you know, it, it, uh, I've talked to people who said, well, you know, there's this problem in our family or this problem with my child, and we we went to a counselor, but it just didn't help. Then go yeah. to another counselor, you know. Right. Um, 
go to a community resource where you don't don't have to worry so much about the cost of it, where you can uh, have where there are maybe two or three people on staff who might be able to help, and maybe one will understand the issue more than the other. Um, you can't give up, and unfortunately, in stressful situations, it's really hard to keep up your energy in uh, trying to find the correct professional, the one that will be most helpful for you. Um, but exactly you right. I, I, you know, it's it's probably one of the things that concerns me the most about our profession, and that is that um, uh, we're just we're human. We're just like uh, the rest of uh, folks who don't practice in this area. But we also have some of some professionals. Many professionals have specialty areas. And so what someone wants to ask before going to see a professional is what's your level of experience and expertise in the area of abuse or domestic violence or whatever the particular issue is depression, anxiety, because they're and, and what age group are they uh, expert in? Uh, and uh, that way it, it's you have a better chance, that you're going to have someone who is aware. Uh, you know, I was trained as a as a general psychologist and specialized in my internship program and then some extra work afterwards. So I was I was trained, if you will, to treat anybody of any age. But my specialty is not in geriatrics. And so while an elderly person could call me when I was in practice and say, you know, uh, would you be willing to see me, uh, I would ask questions. Well, what are the concerns? What, what is it you'd like some assistance in? And then if, if, if it was something that didn't concern family members or something that I felt like I could handle, I would say, you know, I want very much to help you find someone who specializes in this area so that you can get the kind of support and assistance that you need. So we need to educate consumers on how to ask for what it is they're looking for uh, or to find someone to help them navigate that system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that's a very good point. And um, that's why I think especially um, for adults who are going through abusive situations, there are resources you can go to because it takes so much energy and so much um, stress to try and go through that process of finding the right person who can be most helpful to you. And usually if you go to um, a shelter or a, a service that's especially uh, you know, designed for people who are going through uh, abuse, they can help you. They they already yes. know who is really good at working with kids in this situation. They already know, um, you know, where you might be able to find a counselor who understands your situation. Because not all counselors understand domestic violence. Not all counselors understand working with kids. You know, um, and so I would recommend that people who are going through this, um, you know, definitely seek out some of the resources that are available to ask about where do I find other resources. Um, well, and you know, Heather, up. one thought I had as you were saying all that is um, you were presenting a scenario a little while ago about a friend. If you if you are a friend or an outside relative and you want to help, here's one way you could help that person. You could do the legwork for that person. Mm-hmm. You could find where, where what shel- what are the numbers for the shelters. The locations are confidential, of course. Uh, what What's the best approach? What does some uh, who who in the area takes uh, takes uh, low income fees, uh, sliding scale, or who takes what insurance company? Provide a list of resources of these experts. You're you're more likely as a friend or a uh, outside family member to be able to ask the decisive questions uh, and navigate that very complex system sometimes that arises and can provide then that person, here, I've done some research for you. Here here are the specialists in this area. Here's what it costs here. This group takes your insurance. This person, this one has a children's group. This one is a number for a shelter. That would be a wonderful thing that you could do for the people you are concerned about. Yes, and to take it a step further, if it's you know somebody that you are very close to, you might even offer to drive the the person or the children to uh, the whatever counselor the the um, adult chooses. Um, 
So, yeah, I think that's perfect advice. And a lot of times people will say, well, you know, I know this person. And I don't understand how I can help them. I told them to get out. And da, da, da. That doesn't help. Um, no, you know, there are circumstances no, it... you don't understand that's keeping them yeah. there for that moment. Um, but doing something like that, doing the research, that actually does help. Um, so, you know, it sounds like a great plan, and in fact, that's what I always advise to people who are yeah. asking, how can I help so-and-so? You can help them by doing some research. You know, you can yeah. help them by um, helping them find out, you know, where they can go and, and what they can afford and transportation and that kind of thing. So, And they can do that while the person is still in a, a domestic violence situation. You know, yeah. uh, there are that you, you know, the I think the first thing that people think of when they know someone in a domestic violence situation is we got to get you out of there. Right. Well, as we talked about earlier, there are a lot of reasons why that person can't leave just then. Um, right. So you know, let's let's help with what we can. Um, right. And um, great advice. I thank you very much, Jenna. Um, and I think one of the, the individual yeah. wants to be careful not to get pulled into the domestic violence either because their their safety is also at risk. And Absolutely. So I, and there are there are organizations out there that are pros at this. They know what to do. They know what to expect. They focus on safety. Um, so, you know, doing that referral um, is probably one of the best things you can do. Uh, for a, a person going through this. So um, very good advice. I, I really appreciate your, your saying that. Um, one of the things that's really in the news right now is uh, dating violence. Mm-hmm. A lot of young women get into dating violence situations, and um, they don't always recognize it. Right. Um, so how... You know, what if you have a child or a niece or a nephew or something, and they are involved in dating violence? I mean, certainly it is an issue because um, there are so many um, uh, movie stars and, and role models and, you know, uh, that in the news. I mean, I was just reading yesterday that I think it's Emma Thompson, a young actress, arrested for domestic violence with her boyfriend. Um, well, you know, the... There was the very famous Rihanna and and, uh, uh, Chris Brown situation. And what's disturbing to me is a lot of times when I speak speak with young people about, uh, especially like the Rihanna and and Chris Brown thing, they don't really see it as that big of a deal. Yeah. They just don't recognize it as being horrible, awful, you know. In, in many cases, and I think when you were talking about being becoming kind of used to uh, you know violence and and uh, you know kind of inured to that, I was thinking specifically of that situation where I was talking with young people afterwards, and and they just well she started it or well what did she expect or but and, I mean it was just kind of blown off as right. not a big deal. Right. Um, right. How do you deal with that, especially when, uh, I guess it's a wonderful website called Love Shouldn't Hurt, which is designed for teens, uh, and it talks a lot about uh, teen abuse and statistics and what you can do and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And uh, they say that, again, a quarter of teenagers experience dating violence. Right, right. So how do we address that with, with young people? Well, I think we start at a very, very early age uh, by teaching girls and boys what love really is uh, and that love doesn't mean that you tolerate being hurt by someone. Uh, Someone that you love will not ask you or expect you to tolerate humiliation, name-calling, physical harm, discomfort, or any kind of forced situation. We need to educate our, our young boys and our young girls to understand that they take care of themselves. It's important for them to take care of themselves. And personal safety is, is important uh, and they need to look at what the beginning signs of 
violence might be, such as uh, verbal abuse or ridicule or sarcasm. I'm not saying that everybody who does that ends up abusing someone, so I don't want to misrepresent that. But it begins to show the individual that perhaps there is some uh, disequilibrium in the relationship. There's some kind of a power issue uh, that is in the relationship where one partner feels that he or she has to make the other one feel bad. And whenever that should be a warning sign, and we need to teach our young people, boys and girls, what some of these warning signs are. But he's so cute, and he's so nice normally, and he's so much fun, and he just had a bad day, or it's just been bad for him lately because, you know, his parents, or he lost his job, and, you know, so it's just a a temporary thing that he got that nasty with me. You know, I mean, it's not a big permanent thing. It's not a big deal. Yeah, and my response would be, well, for me, it is a big deal, and I'm hoping that you'll be able to think about this differently. Let me tell you why I think it's a big deal for me in a relationship. And then you share with them, very rarely is it a temporary thing. Uh, And maybe he or she is having difficulty coping with a situation. Let's get them some help in learning how to cope with losing a job or cope with whatever it is that has happened. But to accept that a mistake of hurting you in some way is going to go away is is diluting yourself, and it's important for you to make sure you pay attention to whether things escalate or get worse, more difficult. But you don't know because we're really, really in love, and you just you just don't know what it's like to be so much in love. And and he loves me so much. I mean, if he sees me even talking with another boy, he just gets so upset because he just loves me so much. Yeah, and you know, I don't doubt that you love him very much. But what you just described to me is, again, a power issue. You interpret it as coming from a loving place. I interpret it as coming from a scared, controlling place. And so we have very different perspectives about that. Um, and I'm I'm concerned about you, and I'd like for you to think a little bit more about these things. And then I begin to ask questions like, you know, has he ever made a mistake and hit you or pinched you so hard it left a mark? Or And begin to get some information on, uh, was this one time that this young woman or man is telling you about really the, the kind of uh, critical incident that has led them to talk to you about it? Because, you see, I think that's the other thing sometimes we overlook. Sometimes when young people talk to us, as you were role-playing with me just now, they are trying to see if it is normal. They're looking for feedback from you on whether or not that's normal and what can they do. They just can't bring themselves to ask you. But it could be that that's the sixth time that it's happened. And because it's the sixth time, they feel like they need to tell somebody about it, but they don't want it to be scary. And so they 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 put it in the, the conceptual framework of we're so much in love. Well, and I think so much, uh, you know, during that uh, certain times in life, like adolescence, it's so important that you have a boyfriend or that you have a girlfriend or, you know, I mean, uh, some kids see it that way, is that it just is absolutely crucial socially that they have that connection with a member of the opposite sex, that they're willing to put up with some stuff that maybe makes them, um, you know, I always say makes your radar go off, makes your spidey sense go off a little bit, um, because if they, um, if, they, if they deal with that or if they don't accept that kind of behavior, then they might lose the boyfriend or girlfriend. Right. And that can yeah. be a real... Um, um, motivator for putting up with stuff that you don't want to put up with. Right. I think that's why we have to start very young with our children and and help them to see what their value is, help them to see that they have value, they deserve to be treated nicely, and it, it falls into how well we treat them, how respectful are we of our children when they're young, how respectful do we 
we model uh, towards other people? How, how, what are our children learning as they're very young about boundaries and, and how you treat other people, where you, whether you're in a love relationship, a good friendship, uh, a neighbor relationship, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But if we don't start when our children are very young, showing them respect and modeling for them respect and communication and appropriate coping skills, then it's very difficult to get in there and do it when they're 16. It's very difficult. It can be done, but why not? start when they're younger because the benefits will not just be in their dating relationships. The benefit yeah. is to be in their academic behavior, in their uh, in, in the way that they treat you, the way that they treat other people, the way that they take care of pets, their belongings, the way they're team players. It, it, there's tremendous value. That's our responsibility as parents is yeah. to, I believe, is to uh, to raise our children in an environment that gives them the tools and the examples of what we believe is the best way for them to be as a community member themselves. Yeah. And, of course, all of this is ideal. You know, not yeah. all of us live in an environment where we can ideally raise our children that way. Um, you know, so we, we do the best we can. Um, and uh, And I think we have to give our I, – I told my kids, I said, you know, at some point I just decided that I was going to save you kids a lot of money in psychology bills later on in your adult life by just doing whatever the heck I thought was best, and then you can just come right out and say, oh, this is why I didn't like my mother. She did such and such. <laughs> and then, if I, So I don't have to try and be perfect so that you have to pay somebody to help you figure out why you don't like me. <laughs> right. right. You know, we, you know the, one of the things that you referred to that I think is very, very valuable is um, we don't all have the ideal, none of us has the ideal family situation, none of us. And I think that we shouldn't, uh, as parents, feel guilty or feel bad when we don't have a perfect home. Uh, you waste too much energy uh, doing that, and it doesn't accomplish anything. But if instead you can focus on what it is is your strength and what can you provide that child, research has shown that even in very difficult situations, whether we're talking about low-income situations or situations where people, family members have died or been ill or children themselves have had special needs, there, if, if there is one, one consistent person who shows that child that they are of value, who listens to that child, who supports that child emotionally, doesn't have to be a relative. It doesn't have to be a parent. It can be a teacher. It can be a synagogue leader. It can be a Sunday school teacher. It can be uh, the woman at the grocery store that, that says, don't you look cute and, oh, how's school going? Kids can, or kids can be so resilient if they have at least one person in their lives that shows them, that reflects, is the mirror reflection of how good this child can be and how valuable this child can be. Well, I think that a lot of times parents get confused. I, I think that, of course, this is just me. You might say, no, no, you don't know what you're talking about, Heather, and that's fine. Um, but I see so many parents praising their children, just giving them effusive praise, um, uh, I'm thinking of an incident when um, my children were small, and they were playing the little league or the the t ball, you know, where they put the where they're first learning, you know. And um, I was first base coach along with this other uh, with this this father, and little kid hit the ball off the the tee, and so then he started running down the first baseline, and he came to the little little rubber plaque in, in the dirt, and he stopped just short of it, and he looked at it. And then he looked at both the other the other parent and at me, and he said, "Is this first base?" And we went, "Yes." And he went, "Okay." And he stepped on first base. And yeah. I said, 
good job. And the the other parent just went nuts. That is so amazing. Look at you. Look what you did. You know, and I remember thinking, really? He touched first base. That, you know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, know, good job, you know, and then move on. And the appraise was just so effusive. And it occurred to me that maybe it was too effusive. Maybe this kid needed to find out that he could be of value for something other than doing something. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Trying to say I, I do. I do. I, I think that, you know, we we often talk about how punishment, uh, I don't really like this phrase, but it is a common phrase, the punishment should fit the crime. Uh, yeah. Well, the, the praise should fit the effort. Uh, yeah. And I think that it is important to recognize when children do things, but I think it, it has to match the level of the accomplishment or the effort. And I think that it's it's much more effective to praise effort than product. Yeah. Uh, and I think in that situation, it, it it the example you gave, I would say, good asking the question. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, because that's what he did. That was good. He he didn't know what to do, and he asked. Well, that's what we want him to do in future situations if he doesn't know before he touches something. Is this marijuana? Yes. <laughs> okay, no, thank you. Uh, yep. you know, yeah, exactly, so, exactly. Yeah. You, See, you, you so wanted... should have moved into my back room. <laughs> 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 you're, you're 20 years too late now for me. <laughs> well, one of the things that I want to do, and gosh, our time is going so quickly, but we didn't talk a lot about bullying. Yes. And I know it's a huge subject, and it deserves more than just the very few minutes that we have here, but I don't think we can say that we've complete, had a complete discussion without at least touching upon it. So right. many situations of bullying, so many situations in the news where uh, a child has committed suicide or or retaliated in a violent way because of bullying. And I know schools are trying to address this issue. How do parents address it? Well, I think being very educated about what some of the warning signs are when their children are being bullied is very important. Unexplainable injuries, headaches, stomach aches, not wanting to go to school or to the ball game or wherever it might be that this may be occurring. Uh, feelings of helplessness, decreased self-esteem. Now, these things can be caused by a number of things, but it's just being an observant parent or or having conversations like, well, so well, what? What's the best best thing that you like about being at school, or what's the thing that makes you not want to go? Uh, to try to get at figuring out is there a situation that might be difficult. So that's on the the, the direct level. Know what the the signs are and, uh, again, make sure that you are bringing up your children in a way that they know that they don't deserve to be treated that way because they're more likely to tell you they're being bullied if they know that what that person is doing to them is not okay. but uh, if, if, if for some reason they're not talkative because they're scared and that would make sense or whatever, uh, you, it's your responsibility to ask questions. I think on a larger scale, though, Heather, uh, it's really important for us in the community, whether we have kids or not in the school that is down the street from us, around the corner, the one that's our neighborhood school, What are we doing as community members to ensure that that school has the financial support that it needs to have anti-bullying programs? Uh, I think a lot of times we forget that that's an important step that we want in place before we need it. So as community members, whether you have kids in that school or not, it's important for because the kids that go to that school live in your neighborhood. You don't want a bully that lives next door to you. Uh, so yeah. it, it, it's a wonderful way of trying to protect our children, of ensuring that our schools have the resources that they need because 
the the site of of where most bullying occurs for young kids is school. Uh, it can also happen, of course, on sports teams. If that's the case, I mean, you want to be a parent who goes to practice. How does the coach talk to the kids? How do the other kids treat your kid? Be a good observer. And then always let your child know uh, that uh, that you're there to help them in a way that doesn't embarrass them, hopefully, but that your job as the parent is to protect them. And if that means that they get embarrassed, then that's better than they're being harmed. One of the things that uh, my father taught me that I think is it's kind of what his version of the golden rule was, uh, and it was very valuable to me and hopefully very valuable to my children. And I think this is a good kind of empowerment for kids. Uh, he said to me when I was very little and was complaining about uh, the way somebody treated me, uh, he said, Jana, there is no one in this world who is more important than you. At which point, of course, I was ecstatic and I felt like a queen and all that. And he said, wait, I'm not finished. And Jana, Jana, there is no one in this world who is less important than you. Ah, absolutely. with, With that kind of perspective, we teach our kids that we treat everyone, regardless of who they are, as if they are as important as we are, not more and not less. If you believe that the people around you are not more important, then you're not as likely to put up with the bullying. If you believe that people are not less important than you, you're not likely to bully. Yep, exactly. And it's important what you were saying about, you know, little bullies turn into big bullies. Um, and, 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 you know, we all know big bullies. Um, right. They're out there, and sometimes we work with them. Um, so, you know, it's, it's important to, uh, equip our children with how to deal with something like that, I believe. Um, absolutely. so, go ahead. I said, absolutely. We have to teach them that, uh, you don't deserve to be treated this way. If someone says this, you don't have to stand up to them. Uh, directly by saying, I don't like that. That's a great thing to teach kids to do, but, Heather, a lot of kids can't do that. And and a lot of times that will make situations worse. It depends on the situation. But what I tell kids is you don't have to stand up for yourself in front of the bully, but you do need to stand up for yourself with me or with Daddy or with your teacher by telling that this person is not treating you in an okay way. That's standing up for yourself that is just as important as telling the bully, you don't scare me or I don't like that. That takes courage to stand up for yourself and tell someone, and I can help you learn how to do that. Yeah. Well, you know, of course, it used to be, you know, back in the movies from the 40s and 50s, Dad would take the kid out back, teach him how to throw a few punches, and then that would take care of the bully. Um, hopefully we've we've grown beyond that point. I sure <laughs> at the time um, in our history. <laughs> um, so, you know, where does a child go, or where does a parent go if their kid is being bullied and the parent doesn't know what to do? I would go to the school first. Uh Uh, If you think that's where it's happening, I would go to the school and request a parent-teacher conference. Uh, And if that doesn't seem to work, uh, and I would would not only ask about my child and how my child is doing, but I would go to the administration and say, what programs do you have uh, that that, um, you can put into place for more observation? I want more teachers or, or aides to be observing whether or not my child is the victim of being bullied. Um, the other thing I would do is if the child has a favorite uncle or a favorite aunt or a, uh, the, maybe the parent of another friend if the child is older, uh, have them uh, observe the child and listen when the child is over at their house and ask their children, have you heard a little Jana talk about uh, how anybody's been mean to her? Uh, just just don't sit and wait. Be proactive, but not overreactive. 
Yeah, yeah. And I think what I've taken away from this is that it's important to teach our children uh, what they may encounter in life, to teach them how to deal with that, and especially teaching them how to get help if they need it, um, and to help them learn the confidence that they have value as a person, not necessarily because of what they accomplish. That's exactly right. Yeah. We usually end our show, Jenna, with a quote, and uh, I have one today. It is from Darnell Lamont Walker, and it says, you will either profit by or pay for what your children become. Raise them properly. (laughs) Yeah, very nice. Very nice. Jen, I want to thank you so much for being with us this week. I've enjoyed this conversation. A um, little late for me to learn what I did wrong. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> never I could have done better. But wrong. maybe someday I'll have grandkids. Never know. Right. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much. Join us next week. We're going to have uh, a discussion about, uh, oh, gosh, what are we going to have a discussion about? We're going to have a discussion, I think, about um, uh, Guardian's Atlitem. So join us, and we enjoy having you with us every Saturday at 11 o'clock Pacific time. Thank you. See you next week.